I'm not sure what all to say about Fletcher Tink, so I won't say much. Uh, I met Fletcher two years ago when he came to our church and enjoyed his work, his ministry. I've heard a little bit about him since then, and about six weeks ago, had an opportunity to have contact with him and find out he was going to be back in the States for five weeks or so. was going to Washington, D.C. for some meetings or a conference today and thought, boy, could you come by Mifflinburg? So he did, and I'm grateful. Fletcher's been serving the church around the world for a long time. Lives in the Philippines, is married there, and, uh, 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 and uh, has served uh, at the Asia-Pacific Nazarene University, along with a lot of other places. He's one of the most interesting people I've talked to. And uh, he has a lot of great stories, and I thank you for coming to Mifflinburg today. Would you welcome Fletcher King? Good morning, church. I was very moved this morning. It's been 17 months since I've been in a church service face-to-face. Actually, last Sunday I spoke in a church. There were 20 people there. There was no music no live music. It didn't really feel like church. But we've been 450 days in quarantine in the Philippines. No church services other than online. And so when I came in this morning, listened to the instruments, I couldn't restrain myself. Tears butted up in my eyes because I've been yearning for this kind of an experience. And I thank you for, ye- for being God's presence to me this morning. You know, when I came here last time, I came on January the 5th. I had no idea of what was about to happen. January the 8th, the Ta'al volcano exploded. That was 15 kilometers away from our home. And my wife and children had to flee, along with 400,000 others. All our towns around us closed down. Nobody was there. For three days, I had no idea what the situation was with my wife. But I found out that she had been able to escape about 50 miles away, was on a peninsula called Mabini, staying with some friends. We have a little farm And she was one of the few people that with our car could find the back roads to come and feed the animals because all other livestock, for the most part, were abandoned and died. And so I got back on January the 28th. We were trying to recoup things. I was with uh, Dr. Gary Morsh, the founder of Heart to Heart, We organized teams that went into the community and uh, did cleanup. Fortunately, our house was not damaged. And even now, we've just received uh, a large sum of money, a grant from the Singapore Red Cross to help people rebuild some of their houses. My kids attended school about six days. And then COVID. And they've not been able to go to school ever since. It's been a very strange year. The good news is, as I said before, that our house was left intact. 
My wife was able to keep the pigs and the chickens and the ducks and the dogs alive under difficult circumstances. The good news is that when traffic began to return to the area, the Church of the Nazarene with its disaster relief team sent numerous teams into the area to do cleanup. They established such positive relationships that we can now build the possibility of starting the work of the Church of the Nazarene within the area there. So I will return on the 1st of July. I'll have to spend, the way it is right now, 14 days in absolute quarantine in a hotel that I have to pay for before I'll even be able to see my own family. What about the Philippines? It's 110 million people, one-third the population of the USA, living on 7,000 islands. It was conquered first by the Muslims in the south, then by the Spanish, who lost the Spanish-American War in 1898 after three years of being in charge colonially, fell into the hands of the Americans. Then the Americans got pushed aside by the Japanese for three years, then back into the hands of the Americans, and then they earned their independence in 1947. Life expectancy in the Philippines is about 10 years less than what it is in the USA. I'm also mourning the fact that my pastor, his wife died last week. She was 47 years old, didn't get the medical care that she needed, and she leaves behind a teenager and a four-year-old child. Manila is a city of 15 to 25 million people, depending on the time of the year, the day of the week, and the time of the day. If you were to go in and look at the State Department uh, of the USA, their recommendations, you would read this. Level four, do not travel. Under crime, widespread violent or organized crime is present in areas of the country. Local law enforcement may have limited ability to respond to serious crime. Under terrorism, terrorist attacks have occurred and for specific threats against civilians, groups, or other targets may exist. Under civil unrest, political, economic, religious, or ethnic instability exists and may cause violence, major disruptions, and or safety risks. Under health, health risks are present. Whereas the situation here in the United States, we're seeing the lull uh, against COVID, Many people are being vaccinated. Vaccinations are very, very uncommon in the Philippines, and the only ones available are Sinovac from the Chinese. So our numbers are going up while your numbers are going down. Under kidnapping, hostage taking. Kidnapping and or hostage taking occurs in areas of the country. So I'd like to invite you to come visit the Philippines with me. It does sound ominous and dangerous, but I've found a niche in that society where God has placed me and protected me. And that's where I intend to pass the remaining years of my life. 
In John chapter 21, the disciples had seen Jesus. They knew of his resurrection, but they reverted back to old habits and obligations within their fishing occupations. The Bible records that there were seven disciples of the 12 disciples that were on that particular boat. Let me read the passage for you with my commentary. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Pete, Tom, also known as the twin, Nate from Canaan of Galilee, James and John, two other disciples were together. And so Peter says, I'm going out to fish. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into a boat. But that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that was Jesus. I think this is a problem that many of us have. That when Jesus blindsides us, he comes to us, we don't even recognize who he is. We see him as a stranger and as a mysterious person. We don't realize that he's trying to talk to us. He's trying to give us some advice. And so he called out to them, Friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw out your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. You're aware that in those days on the left-hand side of the boat, that's where they normally fished because there was no railing there. The right side of the boat has railing, and it's very awkward to try to throw your nets over on that side. Then uh, when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Pete, It is the Lord. As soon as Peter heard him say this, It is the Lord. He wrapped his outer garment around him, for he'd taken it off, and he jumped into the water. This guy jumps into water quite often. The other disciples followed him in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from the shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it. I want you to see the sequence here. Jesus was already cooking fish, and he had bread. They're dragging their fish towards him, but that's not the fish that they eat. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've just caught. So Pete climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not broken. Uh, the figure 153 is, we understand from commentators, represents all the nations and the tribes of the world known at that time. 153 of them. And so there's something very inclusive that's being told to us in this story. But it also said that the net was not broken. To me, one of the sad things I see in the Christian church in the USA and in other places, is the fact that we have lost our sense of unity with our own discussions back and forth and our positions and so forth. And we keep breaking the net when God wants that net 
integral, holistic, pulled together. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They had a sense that this was Jesus, but they weren't quite sure. They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So what's happening in this story? They fished all night, and the sadness of diminishing returns that I see in the United States is that for all of our efforts of fishing, we're not seeing much return. It's estimated that every convert that's added to the church in North America costs $250,000. If you go somewhere else, in China, in Philippines, in Africa, you'll see that your investment brings people to Jesus Christ for far less than the $250,000 that is costing us to see each person come to Christ. So what is this biblical fishing all about? I've come with a shell. This is an abalone shell. I used to have one about three times larger. I got it in Tasco, Mexico. It was half the original raw stone-like surface on it, and then the carved half on the other side. And that became a metaphor for me. Let me just talk to you a little bit about what fishing was like in the time of Jesus. The River Jordan, they estimate that there were 17 different kinds of fish. In the Sea of Galilee, 29 different kinds of fish. The Mediterranean Sea, 79 different kinds of fish. If you're going to be a fisherman, it's not just something you do in the afternoon or early morning, just a while away time. These fishermen depended on their livelihood doing their fishing with certain uh, characteristics. Fishermen have to be smart just to survive. They have to know climatology, that is weather patterns. I had the opportunity of being with 80 Nazarenes on the Sea of Galilee. 22 of them were pastors. It was an idyllic day like yesterday. Beautiful weather. Boy, we enjoyed that trip out on a boat there in the Sea of Galilee. Then we came into the city of Tiberias. We checked into the hotel. We were to have a session where we got together and shared testimony. And suddenly a huge storm erupted. The winds and the rain were coming down so heavy upon the windows, we couldn't even hear each other testify. And suddenly I realized how weather changes so dramatically right there over the Sea of Galilee. One moment it can be so passive, so pacific. The next moment it can be so violent. You have to know the contours of the rocks and the shoals of the body of the water. They didn't have maps in those days. It was all in their head. 
And it was passed down from generation to generation to generation. They knew where the danger spots were. As fishermen, they knew how to work in teamwork. They had people skills. In the story we just read, seven people were working together and they all had their own roles and their own responsibilities. They had to know how to acquire resources. Who owned the boat? Did they rent the boat? How did they finance the boat? The equipment. In other words, they had management skills. And then you had to know what you were fishing for. The Bible has five different kinds of fishing gear. You have the net. You have the drag net. You have the harpoon. You've got a fishing line. And down deep, you've got traps. Each one of these targets a different kind of fish that you go after. Then you have to have marketing skills. Preserving the catch. Packaging the uh, fish, drying out the fish, and selling the fish. And then, of course, you got the story of the repairing of the nets. You see, there's a lot of stuff going on in being a professional fisherman. Let me go back to the abalone shell. Some people call me a missionary. I don't care for that term very well because in many places in the world, it sets you up for trouble. There are governments that are gunning for missionaries. And so I'm trying to find another language that I can use. So I call myself a fisherman. But I'm a specialized fisherman. My fishing role is that of the dragnet. In other words, I scrape across the bottom of the sea. And my net picks up all kinds of stuff indiscriminately. Trash, old shoes, rotten vegetation, rocks, shrimp, shellfish, crawling critters, maybe abalone, but with legs on it, crawling along like this. In its raw condition, the abalone shell looks like a rock. It appears worthless. And so, as a fisherman, you drag the long, broad net across the bottom of the sea, and it picks up everything imaginable. Much of it is worthless, needs to be thrown back. But the fisherman recognizes the value of the abalone shell, and sees its value, and pulls it up on board. It might still be alive, and the meat is good, worthwhile but it also may be dead, looking just like a rock. But he pulls it up, and he separates it out. And then he takes it back on land, hands it over to a specialist, the sculptor, jeweler, who has the unthankful task of scraping away all that rock stuff, like substance. And nowadays, you cannot even find that the large shells of this size are now cleaned off because it creates cancerous dust. And so that's why I could find it in Mexico but not find it in the United States. Uh, and so finally you work it down, chisel it down till you get to the body of the shell. And then what you see is the beautiful colors 
of the mother of pearl, a multicolored, brilliant design. The fact is, the deeper the water, the heavier the shell, the weight of the shell, which creates larger shells. If you want to be a tiny little shell, remain near the shore. But if you want to be a strong, valuable shell, go deep, because you have to grow to be able to bear the weight of the water that comes down on you. Part of my concern about the church that I see in the United States is that we've got an awful lot of small shell people because it's so easy to be a Christian within this nation. But as I've traveled around the world, I've seen some amazing large shell, abalone shell of tremendous beauty because they have lived in the deep of all kinds of persecution and the weight and burdens of their situation. On every shell, the design is unique. There's no copycats. God has not made us redundant. He makes us all individual and special with our own little patterns of beauty. And when I take this and press it up to the light, one sees more and more brilliant colors. In other words, for your true beauty to be shown, get as close to the light as you can. And amazingly, the colors will shine. So my calling is to go deep, to throw out the dragnet, to yank it in, to carefully select that which is valuable, and then toss back the trash and that which has no value. You see, I don't give the shell the value. I'm merely a fisherman who goes looking for the shell, and I pass it off into the hands of Jesus, who gives it true value at the cost of his own life. He breathes in that cancerous dust and dies on the cross because he wants to make you beautiful. He chisels away at it. It's not a pretty sight. The cancerous dust, the hard work, the removing the ugliness of our lives until he gets us down to the beauty which is underneath. It is he that gives us value. Some people have asked me, how many people have you saved? Friends, the answer is zero. All I do is pull them out of the deep and then I take them to Jesus who works them over and chisels them down and gives them exquisite value. But I heard a mysterious voice that I now understand to be the voice of God. It said, Fletcher, hey, take your dragnet. Go to the other side, the uncomfortable side. I was afraid. I'd never done it that way before. But God called me to go too deep to the other side. The other side's not conducive to comfortable fishing the railing is there and all the impediments. But it was something I had to do, the objective of my life. Lots of pulling, lots of trash, lots of trying to figure out what's worth taking on shore and what's not. I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. 
If you follow me, if you fall, I can't get up there. Me, I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. I've been reflecting. How did I get into this? Perhaps it started with my parents in England, in atheistic, cynical London. Hard, sacrificial ministry. Very few perks. My dad had a nervous breakdown. My mother was sickly. But they worked there diligently in the hard inner city of London, trying to carve out a new Nazarene ministry. Perhaps I was prepared by Peace Corps working as a social worker in Brazil in the Federal District Penitentiary where I tried to bring light into the dark places of men's and women's cells. Or maybe in my seminary days working in the inner city of Kansas City trying to scratch out a new congregation in a church that had been closed down. Or maybe as a pioneer missionary in Santa Cruz, Bolivia in a district called Santa Cruz Notable for its sensual lifestyle, its tropical temperament, its worship of hedonism, pleasure, and sexuality. There I had the opportunity of baptizing and taking into membership the very first Nazarenes that now has become a district. All of that moved me onto the right side, and I've been pulling up dragnets ever since. In the last 10 years, I've used the Philippines as a base for entering into some of the obscure, deep areas of darkness in the world. Had the opportunity of traveling now to 124 nations, teaching in 60 different nations. But for instance, four trips into Pakistan, a tough, difficult Muslim nation, where in one town I was escorted by 16 elite police just for my protection addressing the Muslim leadership in their iftar parties. That is the meal that they celebrate after sundown. And again and again, I would address them on the Christian understanding of fasting. Or maybe it was at the birthplace of the Buddha in Nepal, in Lumbini, on his birthday, meeting in a Buddhist convent with almost all of my students and listeners being Hindus and Buddhists, or both, lecturing to the faculty and the staff of Lumbini Buddhist University. Or maybe it was in Xi'an, China, where I'm teaching 30 Christians, and I'm up in an apartment complex up on the 27th floor. But every time somebody knocks on the door, I have to disappear, lest a communist cadre is there investigating Christian activity. Or maybe just two years ago in Alexandria, Egypt, where I stood before 129 civ civic leaders and doctors and lawyers, 10 journalists who wrote up our encounter in 140 newspapers. I began to talk about the corruption of that nation. And all of a sudden we had a big argument People stood up and said, there is no corruption in Egypt. And others stood up and said, yes, there is. And we suddenly had a riot on our hands. I sat down. My host tried to pacify the congregation. And then we sang the national anthem 
And then after our break, the Holy Spirit came down on that particular group and brought peace where before there was contention. Or perhaps his teaching in Damascus, Syria to 120 Iraqi refugees just three blocks away from Straight Street, which is named, of course, in the book of Acts. Most of them are Muslims, but they're secretly wanting to learn about Jesus, singing praises to him and listening intently to the word. Ironically, just a year and a half ago, I'm in Beirut, Lebanon, where I'm preaching to 100 Syrian refugees. Syria was host to the Iraqi refugees, and now the Syrians themselves have been chased out because of the violence, the civil war there, and now they are refugees in Lebanon, many of them receiving the only help they have from the Church of the Nazarene, or maybe in an upstairs room of a restaurant in Saigon, Ho Chi Minh City, where we don't dare sing loudly lest we get reported to the political leaders. I've gone deep, dragging my net. Most recently, I went to the nation of Bhutan, high in the Himalayas. This is the only official Buddhist nation in the world. It was a very strange time. You can't go into Bhutan as a tourist. You have to sign up with the government, and the government assigns you a travel agent. You pay the government directly $350 a day to go into the country, They make the reservations in the restaurants, the uh, hotels, and you are completely compliant to your travel guide. It was made, uh, an arrangement was made with me to be a tour of one. I had my guide and I had my driver. And we spent the day, wonderful day, beautiful day, visiting many tourist sites. Finally, I was taken to the main, re- uh, the main hotel there, beautiful hotel. And at 5 o'clock, I dismissed my guide. I said to him, you need to go back, spend time with your family. He was happy to hear this. And then what he did not realize was at 7 o'clock, eight pastors snuck into the hotel. And we sat down and we talked for three hours about what God is doing within that nation and within their churches that are meeting underground. We started talking about my return and providing a major conference there. Nine o'clock, they slipped out of the hotel. Early the next morning at seven o'clock in the morning, again, another eight pastors showed up and I was able to sit down with them and we went through the same thing. And then finally I urged them to leave the hotel at nine o'clock because my tour guide was coming. Yesterday I got the word that Amos, who is one of those pastors, is trying to work on an arrangement so he could be the guide, so I could return to Bhutan, and he would put together the schedule that would allow me to have major conferences without the government knowing what we're doing. It's involved some risk, some adventure, some ugly times, some amazing times. I've gone through a lot in my life, but I've not gone through it alone. In Bolivia, I experienced the death of a son and the resultant disruption within a marriage. In Los Angeles, I ministered in the homeless missions with all the agitations and confusion of modern American life. 
I got $300,000 of government funding to do teaching in Leavenworth Penitentiary, spending time behind the walls, ministering 20 hours a week to responsive men. In Nepal, on a Saturday, I'm preaching to uh, 30 people in an apartment complex when the earthquake 7.9 hits and we were able to escape without any injury. The building next to our building came down. 10,000 people died in that moment, 20,000 people homeless, and millions who lost their housing. I was preaching on, on, on Saul the terrorist, and by the time I got outside into the water buffalo field, and we realized that the tremors were continuing, I assembled the group, but now we had double the group because some of the Hindus that were suffering in that moment wanted to join us. And I picked up the story of Paul in Philippi during the earthquake and the assurance that God was there in the midst of all of that. In Myanmar, I fell under a motorcycle, broke my leg and my ankle and my foot in four places. The amazing thing is, I was completely dependent. I was alone in a strange part of the world. But the locals picked me up. They took me to a hotel. They laid me out in the hotel. And then that night I was able to take the bus back to Yangon where I was teaching. That afternoon I preached. They tried to set my bones. They told me I had to return to the United States for surgery. But I still had teaching missions and I continued my way back down to the Philippines where I taught for another two weeks. Again, I was told, you've got to go back immediately. The bone is already forming uh, for the broken tibia and the fibula. I never did make it back for surgery. But three months later, I returned to Pakistan. The amazing thing is, my total financial expense was $140, exactly the amount of money I was carrying when I broke my leg. I went back three years later to say thank you. I'd written up my story in six pages. I walked into the same hotel. I wanted to go say thank you to all the uh, Burmese people that had helped me. I walked in. They said, we're under new management. I said to them, well, uh, is there anybody here? Suddenly a man walks by and he sees me. He says, I'm one of those that carried you off the street into the room. Another lady comes down the back hallway and she says, yes, I'll never forget that day. You were room 2A. I provided for you the meal that day. I hugged them. I thanked them. I gave my, them my six-page testimony. By this time, tourists are gathered all around. I'm passing out my testimony to everybody. Then I go and get on a taxi Turns out the same taxi that took me to the emergency ward of the hospital, they never charged me. I asked why. They said, because you were in such pain, we couldn't charge you. But you've come back to express thank you. I'll never charge you, he said. I got to the hospital. I walked in. They said, what kind of service can we do for you? I said, I've come back to say thank you to the doctor who set my leg because he was an agent of Christ even though he's Buddhist, he was used by Christ to set my leg. And so they said, well, he's been gone for two years, but he just came back two weeks ago. He's back there in his office. I walked on into the office. 
I said, do you remember me? He said, yes, I do. How was the surgery? I said, sir, I never had the surgery. What? I told you you had to have the surgery. Can I see you walk? You don't even have a limp. How much pain are you experiencing? I'm not experiencing any pain. And then he took an x-ray and he looked at it. Perfect alignment. In fact, that bone is stronger now than what it was that day I broke my bone. And that's the way it is with God. That where we have been bruised and broken, God can give us strength, can give us security, can hold it together in ways that otherwise we would never know about. And then, of course, in the Philippines, under a volcanic eruption, an earthquake that set my family fleeing. I will make you fishers of men, fishers of men, fishers of men. I will make you fishers of men if you follow me. I leave this afternoon. I'm speaking in Hagerstown this evening at 6 o'clock. At 8 o'clock tonight, I've got to be on Zoom. I've got 16 students that I'm teaching. They are from Tanzania. They are from Kenya. They are from uh, India. They are from many different locations. Three Bible college professors from Indonesia, tribesmen from East India, two Americans, one who has ministered in China, another graduate student at Oral Roberts University, a Filipina who has served as a missionary in Thailand, an Assembly of God pastor and denominational leader, and the Nazarene district superintendent in Beirut, Lebanon. And so from every night from 8 to 11 o'clock at night, I'm teaching even tonight, tomorrow night, the next night, the next night. What a great privilege to motivate and to impact their lives. Why do I do this? Well, let me just share. You see this basket here? It looks very sturdy. Now, in the past, I've passed it around and people have put money in it. Maybe I should try that here. But the Beni women, the very poor women of Nepal, go out into the streets and they find the discard papers from fast food and from uh, little packaging of sweets and so forth, uh, potato chips, and they've made this. In fact, one lady made a hat for me. It doesn't fit very well on my head and it's not very comfortable, but she gave this to me, made out of trash. Why do I do this? Because all of us in sin, we are merely trash. But God takes the trash and he sees value on it. I had trouble one time. I was walking around in Nepal during break and I'm picking up the trash on the streets. And Along comes a store owner. No, 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 sir. No, no, no. I'll pick it up. It's okay. It's okay. I said, no, I need it. He said, I'll throw it away for you. No, no, no. It's valuable. People, God can make things out of trash. I know that because he's done it in my life. I know it because I've seen and heard testimonies of thousands of people who have expressed the fact that outside of God, they felt no value whatsoever. But with God, they found tremendous value. 
It's value added that God gives to us. And so how do I do it? Well, in what spirit do I fish deep? Share two illustrations. One, this I got from a Turkish pastor. I pray for Turkey. It used to be the center of Christendom, and now it's almost totally abandoned to Christian witness. But this pastor is working there very hard. He told me one time, he said, you know, uh, there was a missionary to Turkey, a lady who came, and she was uh, trying to learn the Turkish language. But she got confused because the word for bathtub is very similar to the word for spirit. So she stands up and she's praying very piously, oh Lord, let us go in the bathtub. Well, it sounds very strange, but he got thinking about it. You can't go out in mission, but that you need to drench yourself, wash yourself, cleanse yourself with the waters of the Holy Spirit within your life for you to be effective as a missionary. Douse yourself. Allow the Holy Spirit to fill you, to wash you, and then to take you on out in ministry. And then he shared a second illustration. I want the pastor to come up here. He said, you Americans, you come to our country and you want to build relationships. Uh, We have a dessert called baklava. It's a sweet, delicious uh, Middle Eastern dessert. Now, I don't have baklava here, but I brought nuts from the Mm. Philippines. Mm. And this is delicious. And I want to give it to you. Thank you. Okay? I've got more. Here. This is coconut. Sweet coconut. Mm. And I want to give this to you. Thank you. Okay? So, uh, I'm coming to you, dear sinner, in Turkey, and I offer this. I knock on the door, I give it to you, and you receive it with great gladness. This represents the beauty of the gospel. You understand? And so as missionaries, we go into a country. You can go sit down now. <laughs> and if you want to go ahead and eat it, you can. It's very sticky, though. But he says there's a problem. Uh, we invite you in. And you come in and you start trumping around in your old western shoes on our beautiful Persian rugs. And you make a mess of things. You bring in, those shoes represent your American ways of thinking, your American cultural values. And you bring it on in and we're saying, no, no, stop there. We have beautiful slippers for you, sandals for you, sitting there at the door. Take off those shoes. We understand where those shoes have been. We don't want them on our Persian rugs. Come on in. Take on the beautiful slippers that we have, representing our culture. And now you can walk around. Don't sully the beauty of the gospel with your own private, cultural 
baggage. And so the sweetness of the desert, of the bakva dessert, uh, but we leave, we must leave our cultural shoes behind. Walk in the cultural sandals of the host culture. But ultimately the greatest, most significant test of my life is the current fishing assignment that I have. Here I'm going to be very honest with you. I was married to an incredible lady for 34 years. She was on the cover of Herald of Holiness. She was a centerfold in Holiness Today. I think the only lady who's been both cover girl and centerfold. And uh, she was a product of missions coming out of Guyana, but of Indian descent. So my children are half Indian. And uh, just an incredibly amazing woman, a scientist who actually now lives not far from here, drove by the community where she lives. After 34 years, she abandoned me, married her boss at uh, Penn State, and there she lives. It was a very painful episode. The Church of the Nazarene held me together through all of this. And uh, gave me continued opportunity to minister. And so, five years ago, I married a Filipina. She comes with three children born out of wedlock. Last week was the 13th birthday of sweet Josel. Thanks to Facebook friends, we were able to buy her a bicycle. But in that relationship... I've had to go deep. You see, I live in a world where there's no Western fraternity, there's no steaks, there's no apple pie, there's no baseball games, there's no elegant concerts, there's no good clothes or suits. I have a 21-year-old car, and this morning she informed me that she had an accident yesterday. Motorcycle ran in and damaged the fender and knocked out the front light. I rarely see a Westerner. I eat the local food, including the famed balut, which is the duck egg, fully formed uh, with the fetus. I'm witnessing to our relatives who know little about the gospel. They know a lot about gold digging and plucking rice. You see, I'm fishing deep into the culture. And yet, when I read this story uh, from the scripture something that hits me and that is they fished they caught 153 fish Jesus calls them to eat the fish that they have on the grill and the bread it's not their fish that they're eating and I I think many times we as Christians we put forth great effort And we believe in quid pro quo. That is, I will be blessed by my efforts that I have given in the relationship. But I've discovered that God blindsides us with blessings that have nothing to do with our efforts whatsoever. He comes to us unseen, sometimes unknowing, and surprises us with his gifts. So while I was writing this sermon... This past week, my daughter brought up to my bedroom a very strange breakfast. It was scrambled eggs mixed with corned beef. 
and light pancakes without the syrup. Where did it come from? Well, I had not realized it, but my former wife was downstairs visiting my daughter. She fixed the breakfast, and she made sure that it was sent up to me upstairs in the bedroom where I was working on this. The one who hurt me so badly nine-plus years ago, she was downstairs. I haven't seen her for a decade. But here was a breakfast, and I can take it, I will take it in the spirit that Jesus provided that surprise breakfast for me. I see her as an agent of Jesus, despite the history, despite the wounds from the past. It's a witness to God's kindness, a gesture of reconciliation. In the past week, I've seen so many evidences of God's breakfast. Catherine, I've never met her. But on Facebook, she asked the question, can I help pay for the hotel bills for the two weeks that you have absolute quarantine that you'll have to endure when you return to the Philippines? I tried to dissuade her, but she sent a check to me two days ago for $300. The cost of the hotel will be $200. There was an extra $100 blindsided by generosity. She says she's the ex-wife of a Nazarene pastor who divorced her doesn't go to the Nazarene church now, but believes in mission and wants to help me. God, thank you for your breakfast that you're giving to me that I have nothing to do with. It's just such a surprise. I'm called to do the fishing, but I don't necessarily know that I'll ever eat the fish that God has allowed. Ari, a Latino teenager, I knew her when she was in high school. She writes me on Facebook. I don't even recognize her last name because she's gotten married. She writes me, she says, I'd like to help Farzana, who's a crippled in Pakistan, who was your student. I want to help buy a wheelchair for her. David, who was my treasurer when I pastored the Alhambra Church in Los Angeles. I would like to edit your manuscript at no cost. He's the former editor for the Los Angeles Times. One of the things I've been doing since I've been in this pandemic under quarantine, write five manuscripts. Joe, a publisher, I'd like to take your divine encounters. I encourage you, by the way, to get on Facebook with me. There's no other Fletcher Tink in the world. I'm the easiest person to find. You'll see me flying on a broom around the world. But uh, please, because daily I'm writing what I call divine encounters. And this will become a book. I've done 77 of them. I'm aiming for 101. He says to me, Joe, traveled with me to Nepal. I will publish 500 copies of your book at no expense whatsoever. God blindsides me. I'm out there. I'm trying to do his will. And again and again, he's giving me breakfast. Then there's Wayne, a pastor somewhere in Pennsylvania, who tells me he'd be delighted to have me share God's message in his church. And so here I find myself. This pandemic has not been easy for any of us. It has allowed me to nurture this little Filipino family into the goodness and graces of God. I've been giving Zoom lectures and webinars and writing books 
And Pastor, I want you to come up here again because I've got two books I want to give to you. This one is 1,001 quotations, most of them my own quotations. It's filled with cartoons. And I have lots of copies that you can buy from me at the end of the service. Minimum of $10. I will sign this for you afterwards. But this is something that I... Pandemic ponderings from the Baha'i. This is only a family version. There's only 25 copies of this. But I want you to have it because as I sit around the house, I see God speaking to me through the common things that I see in the windows and on the walls and in the life of the construction crew that's been building my inner room and my upper room in that location. So I want to give this to you. Yep. Okay. So I've been writing because, you know, people like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Paul, they wrote. They shared their testimony they're thinking, and that made all the difference in your ability to understand the gospel. And so God has allowed me to do this writing. But I'm throwing out the dragnet one more time in our immediate community. You see, I've got one last project. I've got three responsibilities. Training people at Asia Pacific Nazarene Theological Seminary. Taking care of this family so vulnerable, but I want to make them strong Christians. And then the last one is to establish in virgin territory the mission of the Church of the Nazarene. And so six pastors came two weeks ago to visit me. We brainstormed together. We're going to bring in work and witness teams, Nazarene disaster relief, even this Singapore Red Cross grant that I've mentioned before, to help people rebuild their damaged homes and damaged lives. Uh, with the relationships we've already built with the locals to organize summer camps for young people in the very high school that our Nazarene young people from Manila work to provide cleanup from the volcanic ash. I mentioned I added two rooms to our house. Downstairs, the inner room for prayer and meditation, and upstairs for piano lessons and English lessons and Bible studies for my neighbors. Raising funds for developing our first church in Tawalisan, five minutes away in an abandoned church school complex that could easily become a day school, church, and seminar extension. I have a pastor, a young pastor, who's volunteered to become the first pastor of that church. His name is Andrew. Very meaningful to me because the son that I had that died in Bolivia was called Andrew. Gave him the name because that was the first disciple to see Jesus. And now God has given me another Andrew prepared to do this ministry. And I have one other dream and that is in the town of St. Nicholas, San Nicolas, which was right at the cusp of the volcano just across on the lake, on the shores. San Nicolas, Saint Nicholas, Santa Claus. It's becoming a tourist attraction. I want to create a Christmas shop. 
at the edge of Ta'al Lake that would ser serve as a ministry center, a coffee shop, witness center. And so I've had these six pastors visit us to strategize. We're looking for $1,500 a month to pay the pastor and to pay the rental of the facility for a new congregation that we're trying to start. And so hear Christ calling, come on to me, come on to me, come on to me. Hear Christ calling, come on to me, I will give you. Now I struggled, I couldn't remember what the word was. And, and the only word that came into my mind was bread. I will give you bread. Yes, that's what Jesus said. Come on, I want to give you some bread. The word is rest, but I think we need bread. You understand? Maybe you don't have a dragnet, but you might sit on the shore and help repair one or help take some abalone shells to the master jeweler for his work on them. Or maybe you just invite us to Jesus' breakfast. I finish with the story of Mother Teresa. I had the opportunity of spending two weeks doing volunteer services in Calcutta at Mother Teresa's center there, the mother house. It was an amazing two weeks. I learned much. I respect greatly the ministry that she has done. She's buried right there in a very simple mausoleum in the side room in that facility. As a volunteer, I worked in four of her establishments. But uh, on a Wednesday, we had an all day where we could uh, ask questions about her life. And I learned this story that a volunteer left uh, after being transformed and challenged. And he went back to Europe. And he wrote her a letter and said, okay, that was such a decisive point in my life. But now what do I do with it? Six months later, he received a postcard with four words on it. Find your own Calcutta. Find your own Calcutta. I don't expect any of you to trail me around. I don't expect most of you even to try to come to the Philippines, though you are welcome when and if the quarantine ends. Uh, I would love to invite a work and witness team to come, but there's so many uncertainties. But all around you are Calcuttas. And maybe you want a spear and you want to find one fish that you're going to stab like that. Or maybe you've got a trap somewhere. Or maybe you've got a net. Or maybe you're willing to take the dragnet and drag it across the surface, uh, across the, the, the bottom of the sea, to pull up as much as you can, and then take the abalone shells to Jesus Christ for him to fashion them. I don't know what your calling is, but each one of us is called, not just pastors. Every single person, the moment you come to Christ, you have a calling. And the calling is to go out beyond your comfort zone, perhaps even into the deep and fish deep. I thank you for listening to me. If any of you want this book and you can spare $10 or more, I have them already signed. I'd be delighted. 
but I want to pray for you in this congregation. Father, this congregation has been a blessing to me already. In the music, in the witness, in the graduates, I've heard and seen that you're working post-pandemic, doing things optimistically that maybe six months ago we never understood. This is your people, and they have the power to be transformative agents in the world around them. We pray that you will help open their eyes to see Calcutta's and that they may step in, bring life to where there's death. May they pick up whoever it is that seems dead like stone, present them to Jesus. Our Father, we pray for this community that you will indeed use this church to leverage your kingdom on earth in very special ways. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Would you express your appreciation for Fletcher? Come here, Fletcher. Don't sit down yet. Thank you. Thank you, brother, for sharing with us. I don't know how you can go to all those places. You're way too young for all those stories, <laughs> I tell you, that I've enjoyed so much, both last time and this time and in between. I've read a lot of your divine encounters. That's going to be an incredible book. I tell you, I told him that I read the one about Calcutta here a few weeks ago, and my heart just... It pounded within me of something that seems so true about how we see people. Thank you. Thank you for ministry to me, to us. It was excellent. Thank you for being here today. I'm so glad you are. I'd like us to receive a love offering. There's plate here, a plate in the back. I don't know if one made it back over there on the side or not, but we're going to receive a love offering. You've heard a little bit about this man's life. Uh, I don't know how he draws it all together. I, I don't know what to say. You're, in a, you're a unique person, Fletcher, and you're a blessing. Thank you. And uh, he's got a lot of financial needs. I don't know what they all are. I just know he's in so many different ways of, of ministry in different places. I'd love for us to receive a, a great love offering for him today and just be able to give it to him and say thank you for coming our way. And so if you're able to give and you want to, if you make a check out to the church, we'll get it converted to, to a check uh, for Fletcher. He is leaving after lunch again, as he said, to go down to the D.C. area and, and uh, minister a little bit later today. We're glad you're here. We thank you for coming. Would you just again stand and express appreciation for Fletcher Tank? As you go today, if you bring an offering, if you're able to do that, I invite you to do that. Thank you.